This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which we promised for the past two weeks would be somewhat of an unusual show and that we expected to be for this particular episode of Radio Parallax, somewhere in the Caribbean. And that is, in fact, where both Mr. McMillan and I are at the moment. Uh, I wish on occasion we could have pictures to, to add to the, uh, to the audio, which we provide on a radio program. Because at the moment, we're staring out upon Fort George, the top of Brimstone Hill, on the island of St. Kitts, which is the northern part of the Republic of St. Kitts and Nevis. For those of you a little vague on your Caribbean geography, I would say that you should, uh, well, do what I did. Fly east out of Miami till you see Puerto Rico off the starboard wing. Start banking to the right till you pass over the American Virgin Islands. Specifically, it was St. Croix. I'm pretty sure I saw out my plane window. And continue in a southeasterly direction for a while. And uh, if you see uh, St. Martin, in front of you, you've gone too far to the north, and if you've seen Antigua in front of you, you've gone a little bit too far to the east. But if you look out your window and see the large sombrero-like uh, visage of Nevis in the distance, you're in the right place. St. Kitts and Nevis uh, is noted for, I guess, being nicknamed the baseball and bat, and indeed St. Kitts, originally named St. Christopher, by the way, but I guess they just abandoned that at the point where it's officially known in the UN as St. Kitts and Nevis does resemble nothing so much as, well, a bat. And like uh, many islands in this part of the world, is quite spectacularly beautiful. Naturally, as today's program unfolds, we're going to have to, uh, to embed some bits of history, and uh, perhaps natural history and geography, etc., about this most interesting place. Oh, and a word about why it is we're here. Mrs. McMillan is here because his uh, significant other, Melissa, is attending veterinary school. He is here to help her get set up. And I'm here because I know two people on the island, and I thought that was a good enough excuse to come visit. And of course, dear listener, on KDVS and KZFR and the Internet, you well know that we are big advocates of travel on this program and suggest that every so often... When you can, you should pack it up and go somewhere. It's good for you. At any rate, I do want to tell you about this spectacular fort and this spectacular view from the top of the hill that uh, we are currently experiencing. But before we extol the virtues of Brimstone Hill, I think we'll do a little bit of uh, the usual way we like to start this program because, well, just we should. At any rate, on January 23rd in the year 1570, James Stewart the first Earl of Moray, regent for the infant King James VI of Scotland, was assassinated by firearm, the first recorded instance of such. Of course, his great-great-grandson went on to have a very successful career in Hollywood. I'm kidding. On January 23rd in 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell was awarded her M.D. by the Geneva College of Medicine in New York. She became the United States' first female doctor. In this date in 1937, in Moscow, 17 leading communists went on trial, accused of participating in a plot led by Leon Trotsky to overthrow Joseph Stalin's regime. 
on January 23rd in 1941. This one's a bit of a surprise. Charles Lindbergh testified before the United States Congress and recommended the United States negotiate a neutrality pact with Adolf Hitler. I certainly knew that FDR was none too pleased with Charles Lindbergh, but I didn't realize he actually testified before Congress to that effect. Wow. On January 23rd, 1968, North Korea seized the USS Pueblo, claiming that the ship had violated its territorial waters while spying. Although we were not told this at first at home, it turns out the Pueblo was a spy ship. While our sailor-slash-spies were being detained by their North Korean guests, they uh, managed to sneak a few messages home, hinting that their confessions were coerced. They did put together a confession at one point that admitted that they had penetrated North Korean waters and that penetration, however slight, was sufficient to complete the act, which it turns out was also the definition of rape, according to the U.S. military's code. When the North Koreans found out about this, they beat the hell out of those guys. North Koreans having a well-deserved reputation for, well, just no sense of humor whatsoever. And then a final item that's appropriate for today's show, since we're on an island that was fought over by various colonial powers. You should know that it was on January 24th, back in 1848, that a millwright named James Marshall discovered gold along the banks of Sutter's Mill here in Northern California. Nine days later, as it turned out, Mexico ceded California to the U.S. and the gold rush was on. For our quote of the day, we're going to go to a man named Dave Kimber who wrote New Scientist magazine... And I have to admit to being a little short on source material here in the Caribbean. But Dave Kimber asked, When will hospitals and schools revert to using brass instead of stainless steel for door furniture? I understand that some germs like iron, but most hate copper. In an epidemic, even a small reduction in transmission would be worthwhile. That's a good quote. As we talked about on this program uh, some weeks back... Copper is known to have antiseptic qualities. One reason that copper is so popular in pipes. Why wouldn't we use copper on the doors of hospitals? Or at least brass. Attention, hospitalists. Our quip of the day comes from Oscar Wilde, who once said, Drama is life, with the dull bits cut out. Our joke of the day, and this one I think I'm going to recycle from high school, is, what did the elephant say to the naked man? Well, naturally, he thought to ask, how do you breathe through that thing? Our statistic of the day, in this case, is a date. The date in question being the 22nd of February this year, 2014. For those of you experiencing a profound sense of relief at the fact that the Mayan calendar ended and the world didn't, we're sorry to inform you that, well, apparently you're not completely off the hook. Ragnarok, the Viking Day of Doom, is scheduled for this 22nd of February next month. Apparently, Danielle Daglan, who's director of the Jorvik Viking Festival in York, UK, has said Rangarok, excuse me, Rangnarok, is the ultimate landmark in Viking mythology when the gods fall and die. So this really should not be underestimated. And no, we don't know how much Svedka Danielle Daglan had been imbibing before... Uh, warning us about this. And no, we're not sure whether Harold Camping had uh, the apocalyptic end of the world mixed up with Ragnarok. Not that it matters for poor Harold, his own personal apocalypse has come and gone. 
All right, I think at this juncture I should interject just a little bit of Caribbean history as I've come to understand it. And I'll start off by uh, talking about some background to the spectacular Fort George, which I'm staring at at this moment. Let me start by talking about St. Eustatius, which, which is the island visible from the top of the fort uh, off, off to the north. Another volcanic cone of, uh, of great grace and beauty. This small island apparently was doing very well for itself uh, as the French and British were fighting over these various uh, islands here in the Caribbean. Um, when the Dutch took over and set it up as a free port. There's evidently uh, quite a bit of money in being a free port since you didn't have to pay various duties and levies to the home country, which made a lot of people rich. And well, at this point, let me just quote from the Lonely Planet's Guide to Caribbean Islands. Stadia, which is the nickname for St. Eustatius, was the only link between Europe and the New World for much of the 17th century. Since the British and French were fighting and sinking each other's ships, of course, someone that was a neutral uh, a port was thriving. The Dutch made Stadia a duty-free island. Subsequently, thousands of ships used Ornstad, the capital, as their main stopping point between Europe and the colonies in America, bringing arms and gunpowder to the rebellious colonists, among other things. At its heyday, Stadia was home to no less than 20,000 full-time residents, both European colonists and African slaves. It was on November 16, 1776, when Stadia's most infamous moment happened. An American ship sailing into the harbor fired a 13-gun salute indicating American independence. Stadia responded with an 11-gun salute, cementing itself as the first foreign nation to recognize the new United States of America. Britain, notes the book, was none too pleased. A British Navy admiral launched an attack on Stadia in 1781, destroying many warehouses and starting a downhill spiral that produced massive emigration and the demise of Stadia's former glory. This would lead to an attack a few years later on the fort upon which we are, uh, well, resting our limbs. Let's backtrack a bit and talk about this island. The island of St. Kitts, as it's known today, was called Liamwiga, Fertile Island, by its Amerind inhabitants. When Columbus sighted this island on his second voyage to the New World, which was in 1493, he named it St. Christopher after his patron saint. Somewhere along the way, it got later shortened to St. Kitts. And for those keeping track, Columbus used the Spanish word for snow, nieves, to name Nevis, presumably because the clouds shrouding its mountain reminded him of a snow-capped peak. St. Kitts and Nevis are the oldest British colonies in the Caribbean. Sir Thomas Warner founded a colony way back in 1623, not long after uh, Plymouth Rock, only to be joined soon after by the French. Apparently the French and British uh, were getting along for a few years when uh, the local Caribs decided that this is trouble. We need to get these people off our island or they're going to exterminate us. Reportedly, warriors arrived from several nearby islands, but unfortunately for them, before they could plan their attack on uh, the new white invaders, the governor general, Warner, I guess it was, uh, was tipped off by his island mistress that uh, trouble was brewing at which point the French and British joined forces to launch a surprise attack, which apparently was very successful. In an area just south of this fort called Bloody Point, there was a vast massacre. According to legend, there were so many people killed that blood was seen to flow for days. 
Now we're going to have to find a proper source to tell the, the, some of the sordid tales of fighting that went on here in the Caribbean. Uh, this was a very, very important place to uh, European nations. If for no other reason than the fantastic amount of money which could be made from sugar. A lot of money was also being made by robbery since uh, the Spanish, as they were busy pilfering the, um, the great civilizations of the New World, were melting down gold and silver to send back to Spain, and that, you know, that was a very tempting target for pirates of all nations. But the story of sugar is one we probably should devote an entire program to sometime this year. I guess it was the oil of the uh, 17th and perhaps 18th centuries. I had to laugh in reading some of the materials up in the fort that noted that, uh, for example, as the British and French were fighting each other in the 1700s, at one point uh, the island of Guadeloupe was so valuable that after the British held it for a while, they gave it back to France in exchange for French Canada. Something I imagine they're still a bit miffed about up in Quebec. But uh, make no mistake about it, this island, St. Kitts, at one point was an extremely valuable uh, jewel in the crown, you might say, for the British. And for a while for the French when they took it and gave it back. And, uh, anyway, it was in 1782 that uh, this fort was apparently besieged by 8,000 French soldiers. It's really something to contemplate, considering that the current population of this island is only something like 40,000 people. So back in 1782, they had 8,000 French soldiers making war. There's a tremendous amount of money in sugar at that time, as mentioned. And how powerful a force that, that mighty sugar trade was to the world economy is something I think that people just forget. On Radio Parallax's trips to Hawaii some years back, we made mention of how important uh, sugarcane was to those islands. And, uh, yeah, it surely is a worthy topic for a future lengthy discussion. Unfortunately, I... At the moment, I don't have adequate materials to do that justice, but uh, Mr. McMillan, make a note of that. Let's, uh, let's look at that uh, sometime, maybe next month. Noted, Mon. Now, one of the curious attractions on this island of St. Kitts is that a train, a narrow-gauge railroad, runs completely around the perimeter of the island. It was built to facilitate the moving of sugarcane, and um, I guess it still moves some sugarcane, although... Um, with the collapse of the price of world sugar, there's not much of that going on, but hey, makes a great tourist attraction. One this correspondent uh, does hope to enjoy before he leaves. All right, let's not neglect uh, a look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for fans of John Lennon when it was revealed that uh, John Lennon, although he does not live on on Earth, will live on on Mercury. The late Beatle, along with author Truman Capote, is among the namesakes for 10 craters recently discovered on Mercury by NASA's messenger probe. And I did not know this, but according to tradition, craters on Mercury are named after deceased artists and authors. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for creationists, at least those in Texas, with the news that, at least for the next decade, children reading biology textbooks in Texas will be free of anti-evolution propaganda. 
Apparently, creationists on the 15-member Texas State Board of Education have been trying since 2009 to force textual changes designed to undermine the scientific consensus on evolution and failed. And it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for disability fraudsters with the news that a New York grand jury has indicted 106 people, including 80 retired police and firefighters, who are basically coaching people on how to earn disability benefits fraudulently. One former cop named Joseph Esposito was apparently um, overheard coaching someone to fool his doctors uh, by, by saying, if you can, pretend that you have panic attacks. That's in addition to telling them, uh, I don't sleep well at night, tell them. I'm up three or four times. Usually I nap off and on during the day. I, I put the television on, you know, and I keep changing channels because I can't concentrate in the television. But I do it just to hear a voice in the house. Yeah, apparently the DA's office in Manhattan took a look at uh, this ring, among others, and, uh, well, did things like went onto Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube and found pictures of these disabled guys uh, flying helicopters. <laughs> One guy who uh, claimed to be virtually housebound was uh, photographed fishing for marlin in Costa Rica. Anyway, let's take a break in a few moments, but I think before we do so, I should quote from a fascinating piece in New Scientist magazine asking, is there anything wrong with a tropical paradise making money from an invented past? And it turns out this is a piece about Roatan, an island off the north coast of Honduras, which has long been associated with the Maya, but the people who live there were not Mayan. Any archaeological relics you find there are the work of Honduras's other indigenous people, the Pech. Now, when this correspondent visited Roatan some years back, I noted it being more famous for being a pirate haven. In fact, uh, the people generally there uh, speak English, even though it's part of Honduras. Well, according to the magazine, Honduras set up an Institute of Anthropology and History back in 1952 as a serious research organization. But somewhere in the 1970s, its mission changed. The military government then was seeking hard currency and decided to create a tourist industry. Well, Honduras, with plenty of sun, sea, and sand, was kind of a natural for that. But the government also decided to invest in, quote, culture tourism, unquote. It set up a new Ministry of Tourism and roped in the Institute to help out. Their main task was to construct a historic national identity that would serve tourism's need. And that meant only one thing, cashing in on the Maya. It began aggressively promoting the country's Maya past, most notably Copan, which is, I have to say, a spectacular ruined city in the far west of the country, right on the Guatemalan border. And this is legitimately Mayan. But noted new scientist, although it's a spectacular site, it was hardly representative of Honduras's past. Copan was an outpost. Most of modern Honduras was never Mayan territory. But out on Roatan, where the, the whole economy of the island is built on a $50 million tourism industry, it turns out that every year cruise ships disgorge about 800,000 visitors to enjoy its scuba diving, sun, and sand. And also an invented Maya past. Noted a critic, there's a perception that anything that's not Maya is not interesting to tourists. The belief is they'll pay for Maya, but not for Petch. And therefore, it is in Roatan's interest to emphasize its, quote, Mayan heritage, unquote. The most ostentatious example of this is Maya Key, a private island a few minutes by boat from Roatan, where its principal attraction is a full-scale replica of parts of Copan. So this raises the question that was asked at the beginning of the article. Is there something wrong with a tropical paradise making money from an invented past? Well, maybe. 
It does seem that the Mayan, supposed Mayan uh, influence on Roatan is here to stay because, well, when all those uh, cruise ships pull in and disgorge their passengers, what do they want to go see? Well, a lot of them want to go out and see Maya Key. Noted new scientist, another piece of faux history has infiltrated the tourism industry. One of the island's resorts has a reproduction of the Black Pearl, which is the ship from Pirates of the Caribbean, complete with an actor impersonating Captain Jack Sparrow. Said a critic, Roatan has a rich and fascinating history of pirates and buccaneers, but that's not what sells, apparently. What sells is the made-up version. You hate to see it. Of course, in the made-up version of Radio Parallax, we are reporting to you from the lost city of Atlantis right now. And while Mr. Miller and I wait for our UFO to take us to the mainland, we will take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Sixteen men on a dead man's chest. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. We take what we need and the devil with the rest. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. We're mean and we're ugly and we're not too nice. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. We burn and we pillage and we don't think twice. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. Oh, we are. 